Because English is not the first language of the Australian continent, many early landscape writers heard only an echo of their own anxieties. These anxieties arose from their perception that the land was empty, inimical to people, or inhabited by ghosts and savages. The process of writing for me, because it's, uh, you know, people are always shocked when I say that I find it one of the most sort of gruelling and excruciating processes. I think what, what's really important and what is starting to emerge is that places hold what happens in them. Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hard-working people working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. We're back for another season, believe it or not, our fourth season. And on this episode of Glam City, we're talking with artist and author Kim Mahood about the idea of country, about connecting to country, being on country and even writing country. So first, Kim, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? If, if you can think, close your eyes for a minute and think about a place that you feel connected to, can you describe a country or countries that are important to you? Uh, look, I guess, like a lot of people, it's the um, country that I spent my childhood in. Um, I think that sort of embeds in us in a way that places we sort of go to later in life um, uh, don't necessarily. So it's Central Australia in general, um, and, and it was, you know, Central Australia during the 50s and 60s when it was sort of in deep drought. So for me, it's a, it's a very kind of pared back landscape and uh, a very tough landscape. But of course, the one that I, I tend to write a lot about and which I revisit constantly is a little pocket of just sort of to the northwest of the territory of, of the center which is the, the Tanami um, and uh, that's that's probably where I've burrowed in deeper learned a lot you know gone beyond that sort of those childhood feelings and sensations and, and attachments to to really kind of learning a lot more about it and uh, and spending a lot more time with the you know the traditional owners and um, and so, yeah, there's 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 probably a couple of locations um, in the Tanami. They'd be sort of points, water water points. I think you know mm-hmm. people often don't realise that the desert is essentially constructed around water. And so, you know, you find yourself a location where you you have either the you know the the memory of water or the actuality of water, and uh, and from there you kind of contextualise it. And is that childhood? memory of that special place, I guess, or that important place around the Tanami, is that what drew you back to that place in later life in terms of revisiting uh, the Aboriginal community there and connecting with, with, I guess, different knowledges and different connections to that place? Look, I suppose um, in a simplified way you could say yes, but I think it was a lot more complicated than that. Um, I think... You know, my family left. It wasn't my choice to go, and uh, it was a sense of unfinished business mm. that that took me back. And partly, it was the country itself. Um, I mean, that's always been the big draw card for me is the actual physical landscape. But always because you know, right through my childhood, Aboriginal people were you know rather sort of enmeshed with that world, mm. and so they were never kind of separate from country and. There was a sense of, as white people, we had people like me certainly had a very deep feeling for country, but that it was different, came from maybe a different 
sort of sensibility. And I think that always needled at me. It was just something I, I could never quite sort of reconcile. And uh, I, I felt the kind of absolute necessity of going back. And uh, and yet at the same time, there was a part of me that sort of resisted it too. It was like, do I really want to do this? But uh, um, I did it anyway. And uh, it's sort of over the years, that's probably still in there. It's like, do I really want to do this? It's, you know, it's, mm. uh, it makes for a, a very kind of um, you know, a life that you can't really plan very well. And, uh, and yet, um, you know, still every year I stop sort of asking the question about what I'm doing and I just, you know, pack the ute and get going. In spite of, or possibly because of, what we are beginning to understand about the webs of kinship and song that connect every part of the country, a deep ambivalence continues to permeate the stories we tell. It has taken a long time for literary forms of writing to pay attention to the sounds that hum along the arteries of the country. It's um, it's actually a, a lovely prompt there that sort of goes to the heart of the essay that you've written in the Griffith Review, Lost and Found in Translation, which is really about that tension, isn't it, between kind of an obligation to go and attempt an act of translation of country, but also the difficulty of that and the sort of, I guess, inherent obstacles to translating country into another form, into a literary form. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess the process of writing for me, because, I mean, in a way, writing, I have exactly the same attitude to writing, which is I don't really want to do that. (laughs) It's too hard. It's, uh, you know, people are always shocked when I say that I find it one of the most sort of gruelling and excruciating processes. I'm shocked listening um, to that because it's beautiful to read it, to be honest. Well, it's sort of, um, I mean, one of the, the questions that I was sent was, what's your methodology or research? And, you know, I don't, on the whole, I don't research. My methodology is, tends to be, there's a, a sort of obsessive idea that just needles away at me. And, uh, and I work out what it is by writing. You know, it's sort of, I start to dig down and I discover all kinds of things, you know, in my mind that that aren't near the surface and and of course the craft of writing requires you know dragging it up you know and in its initial form it's kind of pretty pretty ugly and 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 unresolved and and clunky and then just knowing that buried in this kind of mess is the gem of something and so I just keep going at it until finally you know the words kind of get into the right order so that's sort of my process, which which is why I work very slowly. What was the particular prompt for this piece of writing about about translation and and translating country? What you're saying before the irritation. What was the nub of the irritation <laughs> that piqued this particular question? Look, it's uh, it was an accumulation of things. I I at the same time, more or less, um, I was writing a piece for the monthly about a project in that's happening um, sort of in our springs with the NPY Women's Council and the um, all the uh, the Anangu people in that pocket of country southwest of Alice and uh, it was very much around language and what happened if people if if you had really good interpreters and and so you had people speaking together 
through, you know, being able to sort of communicate in like really sophisticated and complex ways instead of the kind of, you know, truncated process that tends to happen where, you know, the Aboriginal people are all expected to kind of listen to English and, and, and communicate in English. And of course, once that process is done the way has ha- that's happening with Udikulinjaku, which means to listen and understand clearly, this astonishing material emerges and uh, that process was actually looking at, um, it was around sort of mental health issues and, and what emerged in the end was the extracting from a kind of um, traditional story, a sort of embedded dreaming story, a metaphor about called the man in the log, about a man being trapped in a log and how he's rescued by his wives and by the traditional healers and so on. And, uh, and so... It was the combination of, you know, what the language itself holds, but also the songlines as this reservoir, these these arteries of psychological kind of material, and and so that that was something that had just emerged. The songlines project that I worked on for the National Museum that was sort of full of all of that, but it it takes a sort of combination of things, I think, to for the idea to kind of come to the surface and then once it's there, um, it's, uh, then I start, start sort of looking, digging back down into what's, you know, what's around to kind of either tease that idea further or, um, and I'm, you know, that, that's one that's really, it's just at the beginning of, you know, it's kind of still uh, that, that essay, the one for the monthly and this Griffith Review one um, are my just beginnings of, looking into that because I feel like it's in that psychological terrain that for both sort of Aboriginal people and for white people that, you know, the ideas I'm interested in reside. The major song lines, such as the Seven Sisters, are like arteries that carry the life force of the culture through the body of the country. The reenactment of ancestral events draws on that arterial energy and feeds back into it, in a cycle that makes deep time continuous with the present. The performance of ceremony and song at the creation sites, where ancient dramas are inscribed in the landforms, reinvigorates the dreaming, ensuring that the country remains alert and alive. You write in the essay, it has taken a long time for literary forms of writing to pay attention to the sounds that hum along the arteries of the country. What do you mean by that? I mean, I guess it's the emerging of of writing that reflects or allows the voices and the stories of Aboriginal people to emerge in their own form mm. um, rather than, you know... Because, you know, as I, as I say in the essay, literary forms of writing are not where most of those stories, uh, yeah, they may have been sort of recorded by anthropologists and so on, but that, that stays within a very kind of esoteric domain. Yeah. Uh, I think what I'm talking about is how those stories are starting to emerge into the kind of broader national yeah. consciousness. Um, and they're not necessarily, you know, I think the literary form is still a tricky one. Mm. You know, they're, they're tending to be... I mean, that, that Songlines exhibition was, a, I think, a, a, a real kind of game changer in terms of opening up to the public a sort of 
you know, a real insight into yeah. how culture and songlines and so on work. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a challenge for someone like me where, where, you know, that words are still and writing are still the form that works best for me. I think filmmakers are doing amazing things. You know, mm. there's, this, there's that sort of natural capacity. A lot of young Aboriginal people are taking up that technology and coming up with the most astonishing stuff. I mean, mm. that's a whole other realm. But, you know, I'm, I'm too old now to take <laughs> up another technology. And it's um, not just a matter of literal translation, is it? I mean, it's not just about finding the right words. It's also literary writing or Western literary writing is it's chronological, it's teleological, it has a particular tempo. And there's a beautiful quote, uh, a really vivid anecdote that you cite from John Bradley in the Gulf Country, where he recounts an elderly Yanua woman asking, can my country hear English? So Mm. there's this sort of real tension there between wanting to listen to country, but in the act of writing it down, will country listen back? You know, it's it's very, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I think it's that, um, for me, it's that tension that is interesting. You know, um, I am what always kind of needles at me is the things that seem somehow, uh, it's not so much that they're ir- irreconcilable, it's that you have to hold simultaneously these very contradictory things. And it's somewhere in, in between those things that the, you know, that, that that's the area of like, creativity and excitement and possibility uh, and it's something very difficult to actually put into words but I think I think the best literary writing actually does do that um, it makes the space for the reader to enter that thing you know you set up well, what I try to do I guess is set up those tensions and then you know let the reader figure it out for themselves by giving them, you know, some challenges and, you know, if we get into the map making, it's like, you know, it's a it's a treasure hunt. There's these sort of little gems that you find as as you figure out how to proceed through the story. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. Let's talk a little bit about the um, Seven Sisters exhibition and, and the and the mapping um, projects that you've been working on. I, I saw the exhibition at the National Museum and it sort of incorporated an extraordinarily huge space of Australia and also a sense of um, a really new or different sense of time. It wasn't necessarily a linear time. It was that sort of um, that every when that that Stanner talks about in relation to the dreaming, you know. Um, What was it like trying to be essentially the translator there and turning that song line or there's several iterations of that song line into one exhibition for a non-Indigenous audience? Well, look, I was just part of a, a, a team, obviously, mm. and uh, and was brought on board partly in order to, you know, distill the key ideas in the exhibition into kind of bites that were digestible for an audience that might come to it with absolutely no knowledge. But, of course, in doing that, you know, to do that well, you have to absorb a lot of stuff and then kind of somehow, yeah, as I say, distill out the sort of key points. It was a fantastic experience because 
I learnt so much in the process and um, I did have uh, background with the Maru people because I'd worked on the previous exhibition, We Don't Need a Map. The fact that you could have so many Aboriginal voices in the space, you know, there was, uh, you had the paintings. I mean, the paintings speak in their own way. Um, then, you know, you had people being interviewed, you, you know, people... Like some of the the old ladies who are who are actually first contact, you know, telling the story um, in their own voices. The sculpture, you know, the the, the seven mm. sisters actually, the Minipuru, um just being, um, you know, being made by the Jumbi Desert weavers. So you had these mad, wacky, you know, the, the I think the exuberance of it was what was so breathtaking mm. um, and underneath that sort of humour and exuberance was this sort of much darker story mm. that just popped out in various forms and so look it was, <laughs> it was it was just one of those things that could have gone horribly wrong you know if you got it wrong um, it would just be a, be a disaster but um, I have to say that you know the team on it was was uh, it was I mean I love working in that sort of environment. I have a similar sort of I guess, sense of the obligation of needing to incorporate some of those song lines into what you might call an Australian historiography. You know, how do we actually include or incorporate Indigenous perspectives and histories into the Australian canon, if you like? Um, But there's also, there's an ethical obligation to do that, but there's also an ethical dilemma about in that act of translation, what is something being lost? And I suppose that exhibition shows that it doesn't have to necessarily be translated into one thing. You know, there's this um, really eclectic exuberance that you that you described there that that made it may perhaps made it so powerful. Actually, I think so. I think so. And I mean, just going back to the the notion of how history, you know, is seen as a you know, something that has a, a linear process. I think what what's really important and what is starting to emerge, and I think it's something that um, I've always sort of fundamentally felt, is that places hold what happens in them, and that changes the whole notion of the linear. In that mm. case, it's like you go to a place, and then it becomes you know you you, you sort of where you're standing, you know at any given time, you know, everything that's happened in that place is still there. So you, you occupy that simultaneous time. And uh, and I think once you feel that in, in an embodied way, then you can never see time in that linear way again. Um, and I think that's why, you know, certain parts of Australia where where the physical landscape isn't radically changed from the way it was, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago, it's much it's much more visible. It's much more obvious. Mm. You know, it's harder to do it if you're in a, you know standing in Sydney or whatever. And uh, and so I guess that's probably why those more remote places still carry the charge. You know, in a way, and and the fact that a lot of white Australia already has a a complicated sense of what is out there so um, you know there's the, the, the willingness to invest it with a kind of magic although I think, I think it's there I think in some ways our challenge is to bring that sort of notion of, of a you know deeply layered place into into the less sort of romantic yes 
Uh, we had Bruce Pascoe on the show recently and he talked precisely about that, about the necessity of renaming Australia using first languages to produce that layered and textured mm. map, an Indigenous map. Um, and he thought, mm. he he argues that not only does that get us closer to, to place and a, and a sort of a connection to place, but also a better understanding of, of Australian history and what history means. There's so much information about our country encapsulated in Aboriginal languages that, you know, we'd be silly not to get involved because it teaches us so much about our own land. And I think a lot of Australians want to belong here. Mm. They really want to belong to the land. And this is one of the acts of belonging. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I have this sort of vision that we could, yeah, we could create that map over the entire continent. Um, um, it does sort of turn into a bit of a um, um, Borgesian idea. <laughs> to get too big to be useful but um but uh, uh you know that it does seem to be entering the zeitgeist a bit now the idea of of um you know digging down through the layers of place and uh and and allowing you know or, or finding what is still there i think place names are you know a lot of a lot of australia those place names are there even if they're slightly you know the 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 pronunciations may have been shifted through time, but it's a good place to start mm. in, in order to, you know, find out what's there. There's a sea change occurring in the literature of place. Indigenous writers are entering the mainstream and writing about the inland as being infiltrated by women's stories, both black and white. Less oppressed by the existential void, less impressed by the explorer narratives, they have an exuberance and vitality that is bringing into language a very different sensibility and one whose time has come. And I guess maybe uh, it, it might well be unwieldy to have an Australian map of that of that sort of drilling down. But as you say, when we were talking about at the beginning, um, sometimes it's our own kind of special place or our own attachment to country that's important. Uh, and having that knowledge for those places is, uh, I suppose, a template for something bigger. You know, you can if you understand a place that can roll out in a, in, a, in a bigger sense and maybe we don't have to hold the whole of Australia in our minds. Um, Australia is many countries. Well, exactly. And I mean, that's precisely what I've done with, you know, my um, relationship to the, you know, the Tanami, which is that section from, uh, you know, the station that my family established in the 60s through and across the border, you know, Dalgo um, community and across to Mullen, Lake Gregory, Paraku, that area. I have the resources and the access to that country in a way that I don't have anywhere else. You know, um, I can go out into Madhu land, but I'm very, very constrained in terms of where I can go there because I don't know the country, um, and so I can only I can only navigate via you know people who are already there. Whereas with the Tanami, I have because I have a much sort of deeper and longer relationship. Um, I can explore it along, you know, I can use a sort of my my literary Western process along with, you know, the I can hook up with the traditional owners. Um, I can talk to the station people. Um, you know, I can, I can sort of develop that multi-layered uh, response to it. And, of course, there's also, you know, there are maps of all kinds. There's paintings of all kinds. You've got 
Aboriginal people who, you know, there's lots of oral histories available. It's, it's an archive that I'm able to tap into and, you know, build precisely the type of understanding, you know, map slash history that, that you're just describing. And as a template, I guess, you know, that's something that I would really like to see develop in, you know, each, and, and you have to, I think, have a, have a reason to do it, you know, to, to apply your, your, um, the, the, you know, the type of, of focus that it requires. You, you either have to, you know, feel passionate about it mm. or, or feel that, you know, there's a story embedded in there that has to come out, you know, it needs that sort of driving passion. And, and so that would, that would direct the focus of the process too, you know, because I think history and maps and so on, they, present a point of view or multiple points of view but they're never going to tell the whole story um, you just do the best you can really it's always an act of translation isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah that's right exactly. it's what is happening at this interface that excites me through long established partnerships collaborations grounded in trust friendship and respect plus technologies that allow for different kinds of storytelling Voices in their multitudes are making themselves heard, framing new stories along with the old. Thanks, Kim. That brings us to our final segment for the show, our very famous um, and well-regarded, highly cited Glam Slam segment, where we talk about what's coming up in our diaries in the coming weeks and months in history land. What are you thinking about seeing, walking, singing, translating in the coming weeks? Well, I am actually just getting organised to my annual kind of stint up north and um, I'm actually heading up to do some mapping work at Alikarang uh, Aboriginal Community, which used to be called Warrabri, which is um, sort of in between Alice Springs and Tennant Creek. And uh, it's to kind of do what we've just been talking about to gather together the people there and and to map everything that is important to them um, in terms of it's to, to prepare for a very pra- practical project, an agricultural project on their land. It's sort of the first time, well, it's not the first, second time I've applied it in a place that I don't really have any history with. Mm-hmm. So, so these things always for me. I know I'm going to learn something really surprising um, in the process, and uh, and I don't know what that will be. So, so there's always that. Uh, I guess my modus operandi is this, this sort of trepidation, and at the same time, you know, curiosity and thinking. So, what's going to come out of it, mm. and uh, where to next? Mm. Well, that's the best sort of history work, isn't it, when you're doing history? I guess so. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm sort of none of those things. I'm not a proper map maker even. So I sort of bring this eclectic sort of bunch of skills. And in the process, of course, yes, I can, you know, when a historian speaks about their process, I think, oh, I know what they're talking about <laughs> and, and, and so on. Thanks so much for sharing that process with us today. Um, It's been great talking with you about your essay, Lost and Found in Translation. And for all of those who are listening, um, it's a beautiful essay and the whole collection, the Griffith Review collection of uh, writing the country is just 
absolutely stunning. We thoroughly recommend it. That is what's on my glam slam for this month is getting my hot little hands and finishing it because I'm, uh, I'm in the middle and it's just fabulous. So thanks so much, Kim, for speaking with us today. Oh, thanks very much, Anna. And yes, uh, it's, a, it's full of treasures, this Griffith Review. And that brings us to the close of another Glam City episode for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. Hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me under at Anna Hope Clark. Glam City is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that their histories have been made on this place for thousands of years. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. Thanks so much to Kim Mahood for being our guest today. You can catch her essay along with the other collection of fantastic writings on country in the Griffith Review, issue 63, Writing the Country, at any good bookshop.